Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode for me personally is one of my favourite writers out there. I believe he's one of the best in the game. I'm joined by the absolute genius Joe Hill. I first discovered Joe's work about 10 years ago. I was going on holiday and I didn't have a book to read and in true typical fashion which you do when you're running late, I was at the airport and I thought, sod it, I'll run into WH Smith's and just grab a book. I think it was in the chart at the time. I didn't know anything about him. I certainly didn't know it was Stephen King's son at that point, but I saw the book of horns. I love the cover and I just grabbed it. I read it on the flight and I absolutely loved it. And since then, I've been a huge fan of his work. I then went and read Heart Shaped Box, which I thought was incredible. 20th Century Ghosts, The Fireman, Nosferatu, In the Tall Grass, which he does with his father, which is amazing. I even then went and checked out the graphic novels for Lock and Key, which I also think is a great series on Netflix. And most recently, I've just finished Strange Weather. He really is one of the best writers out there, and I'm so thrilled, and I can't wait to share the interview in only a few minutes' time. But you know what the score is now with Mark and me. I do like to touch base and talk about the last episode. I was joined by the absolutely amazing Brian Walsh, or as you may know him, Head from the band Corn. This guy was amazing. He opened up so much and the interview went in a place I never expected. It got quite dark. We talked a lot about abuse, bullying and how to tackle these things growing up. As we sit here right now, the second most downloaded episode I've ever done. The response was phenomenal. I've had lots of personal emails, tweets and Facebook comments just about how proud they were of the fact he opened up and talked about issues that they also suffer from. And it's always important to know you're not alone and I hope you took a lot from the episode. So thank you to everyone that listened. But as I just said, I'm joined today by Joe Hill and we get to talk all about Nosferatu and its recent adaptation. That's now available and I can't urge you enough to go and check it out. You can get it on DVD or stream it or stick around to the end of today's episode where you can find out how to win a copy. I can't wait to share this interview so I think the best thing to do is get to it now. So here's me and Joe Hill talking all things writing. So Joe, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I actually met you, Joe, you won't remember this, in Waterstones about four years ago when you did a signing in Birmingham. Well, I remember the tour. Yeah. What, that would have been the Nos- uh, that would have been the fireman tour. That's correct. I remember a couple of the stops. The thing that I remember best about it was at one stop, this guy showed up and he had a stack of uh, 25 title pages from the fireman. Just the title pages, not the book. They had all been torn out. And he said something like, um, what, what was the story he gave me? Um, that he had discovered them in a used bookstore or something like that. I forget what the exact story was. I signed him for him. I just thought, okay, fine. The next stop I went to, the bookstore apologized. and said, we're really sorry. We don't have as many books as we were hoping to. Someone went through the bookstore and ripped out the title pages. Wow. And, you know, 25 of our books. And I thought, oh my God. And I signed them. Jesus. What an absolute arsehole. Yeah, no shit, right? Uh, some of the listeners out there will obviously know a lot of your work, some may not. So what I do want to do is just take it quickly back to the start and forgetting your family and everything else. What was it that made you want to start writing? I don't know if you can. I don't know if I can forget my family on that, because, you know, the thing is, is both my parents are really successful novelists. Yeah. And when I was 
you know, 12 years old, I, I would come home and find them both playing make-believe. You know, my mom would be in her office in front of a tomato colored IBM electric electric typewriter nice. banging away at it. And my dad had a uh, Wang word processor. Um, it had uh, the screen, the letters on the screen glowed this kind of middle earth green, you know, this sort of like you're looking into the eye of Gollum or something. Wow. And, uh, you know, the whole, it was just, um, such a cool piece of equipment. It just looked like the future, you know, it just looked like the 21st (laughs) century. And, you know, I paid attention to both of them working and I thought, so this is what you do. You sit by yourself in a room for a couple hours every day and you listen to the voices in your head and you play make-believe, and then eventually someone will pay you a lot of money for it. And that turned out to be true. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I, I felt like, you know, by the time I was 12, I was like, this is just what people do. It's what people, my family do. So I started writing then. And my first professional fiction submission was actually um, a 22-page Spider-Man script, which I sent into Marvel Comics at the age of 12. Wow. And I got back a rejection from the editor-in-chief, um, a handwritten rejection. I couldn't read a word it said. It's possible it said, this was utter garbage, hang it up, kid. Um, but I, I told myself he was encouraging me, and so I kept going. Is that one of those things that you always see in films and TV where you framed it now, and it's on your, like by the side of your bed, that rejection letter? I wish I had it. You know, I wish <laughs> I still had it. I mean, in a weird way... Um, I owe a lot to old the old web slinger um, because, uh, you know, my first fiction submission was to Marvel Comics to write for Spider-Man. And then if you jump ahead, uh, was it as much as 20 years? It, it was probably a little less than 20 years. I was a failed novelist. Um, I'd written four books I, I couldn't sell. I, you know, just to address the elephant in the room. So my dad, Stephen King um, and and. I didn't want to get published because I had a famous parent because I had a celebrity parent. I was super insecure and it was really important to me to know that when I sold a story, I sold it for the right reasons. So in college, I started writing as Joe Hill and I kept it a secret about who my family was. Um, And, uh, and, and then, you know, over the course of the years that followed, I wrote these four novels that I couldn't sell anywhere i you know they were turned down by every publisher in new york every publisher in london um eventually they were turned down by every publisher in canada which was a real kick in the nuts i mean you know it just goes to show you know no matter how low you sink there's always further to fall yeah um but uh um in the midst of all this failure i had written a few successful short stories um including one that got in a best of collection and on the back of that that story that got in the best of anthology 20th century ghost. Um, I won an audition at Marvel comics and, and my sort of my breakthrough publication was an 11 page Spider-Man story. So that was, you know, to me breaking in at Marvel felt almost as good as selling a novel. I recently um, had Brandon Cronenberg on the podcast and obviously he's the son of David Cronenberg. And I said to him, kind of know the same from you. Is there that instant pressure that's, already on you that you kind of feel like you said you must have that anxiety and stress to put your name out there because eventually someone was going to say okay it's not joking it's joe hill but eventually the secret gets out there does that yeah amplify the pressure that's on you because everyone's going to be like oh he's not as good as his dad or oh i'm sure it's just going to be like his dad because it must be difficult because i'm asking you this you're the insider but i want right. I'm, it's an outsider but i wondered if i could get inside your head 
is it just like an extra weight on you all the time? No, not really. Not really. And I think that's because, um, you know, I did take a, have a 10 year apprenticeship when I wrote stories I couldn't sell and, you know, books that people didn't want and, and then gradually figured out how to write a story that people did want, how to write yeah. something that people did get excited about. That was really the goal was to, you know, was to sell stories that editors bought, not because I had a famous dad, but because, you know, because they excited them and they wanted to publish them. And eventually I found my way to that. And, and, you know, I, uh, although I hadn't managed to break through with a novel, I had a collection of about a dozen stories that had been published in small magazines. And that, that was, that was collected into a collection that was published by a small English publisher, PS Publishing. Yeah. Um, you know, they had did a hardcover edition in 2005 and that was my first book. And then I had to go out and support it. So I had to appear at conventions. And as soon as I started going to conventions and stuff to sell the book, the pen name fell apart because there was this one big giveaway that I was related to Stephen King and it was my face. <laughs> um, you know, but the thing is, is by then I had built up a little confidence. I, yeah. I knew I could write a short story um, and that the short stories were good. And I felt that I had my own particular voice. What I eventually learned, you know, then I had a novel that, you know, Heart Shaped Box that was a you know, big publication and did really well. And, you know, and, and gradually what I learned over over the books that followed and over the time that passed is um, sooner or later you are judged on your own merit. Yeah. Um, you know, you may have a famous daddy, but if the the book is no good, you know, people might buy readers might buy one lousy book to give it a try. Yeah. But they'll never buy anything else by you. You know, they'll say oh, they, this this dude just trying to slide by on his father's coattails. But if the work excites people, if they you know, if it lifts them up and carries them away and gives them something in their day to look forward to, if you can manage that, you can have a career. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I was always shooting for. And I, I think it worked out pretty well that we you know, that I sort of managed to find my way to that for the most part. I you know, my, my first introduction to your work was Horns. I bought the book. I just loved the cover. And I didn't know at that point who you were, as in for your father. And I yeah. it and I loved it. And then when the movie came out and it was cast, um, I'm not a massive fan of Daniel Radcliffe because of Harry Potter. I just don't like him in yeah. the films, me personally. But when I went to see the film, I was blown away. And I thought, OK, this is He's the roles he should be given. He is absolutely yeah. outstanding in this. And it must have been a pleasure to see how much respect they gave that adaptation and it came out so well on screen it's such a great film and such a great book oh hey thank you i'm so glad to hear you say that it's a weird movie because it shifts tones yeah the first third of the picture is almost like uh you know a very black comedy yeah the second third of the picture is um this kind of romantic tragedy and then the final third of the picture is this um sort of magic realistic um you know um spiritual close so you've got these three tonal shifts in the picture which i think made it a little bit strange for some audiences but it's anchored by some amazing performances daniel radcliffe was so great juno temple was terrific amazing. um max Minella. Who, who plays our bad guy was brilliant. And, and, you know, that sort of marked out, you know, um, anticipated the great work he'd do on Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Um, you know, and Alexandra Aja, who directed it, just has this beautiful painterly eye. And so it just looked, 
you know, visually it just looked so lush and so, you know, so beautiful. So I was very lucky, you know, to, to have such a talented bunch of people come together and, and, you know, bring the book to screen. I never would have, never would my wildest dreams would have imagined that, that, that if, you know, that that was going to be a film. No. And if I did think one of my stories was going to be made a film, Horns is the one I would have said is the closest to being unfilmable. Yeah. It's amazing. And it was really good just to be able to sit there and see how true it was to the book. Because sometimes they fuck about and they change things and they want to try and yeah. make things. But I, was, I just thought, no, this is, I'm sure Joe's going to sit here and look at this and be like, yeah, I'm proud of this. It's a good, it's a good adaptation. I thought it was a wonderful adaptation. I, I think, you know, again, I think it's, it's more of a cult film. It didn't yeah. really break through to, as, as, but I'm not sure that Daniel Radcliffe really wanted to make, you know, a, a big blockbuster, big supernatural no. blockbuster. I think he wanted to do something um, that explored some ideas and themes and emotional territory um, that exists outside of that kind of blockbuster filmmaking yeah. realm. It must have been a like, challenge for him, and I bet he was outside his comfort zone. And do you know what? He proved me wrong. So I'm sitting there now. So, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll go and see, I'll go and see whatever he does next. You know. Yeah, he did. Uh, um, I think of all his post um, Harry Potter work, um, he's done his best work on stage. Yeah. Um, he appeared in a play called Cripple of Inishman, um, which is I think a Martin Donau screenplay, and yeah. it was just a staggeringly brilliant performance um and and you know he was on stage surrounded by these veterans of british stage who are absolute masters of the craft and and he fit in you know like hand to glove with all of them you know great that's that i'd love to see that as a film i think yeah. i think cripple of Inishment would have made a terrific picture at the moment you're promoting nosferatu which has obviously come out as a series now a yeah. lot of people prefer a series because you can binge watch it and you haven't got to just sit there and watch them week after week which is great yeah also that seems to be the way that people are going now with disney plus and netflix and amazon people just would rather and we can't even go to the cinemas right now but the fact is you can sit there get completely indulged in these episodes love the characters i mean that's how i spend most of my life now watching documentaries and tv yeah but it's good that they've given this time to your book because it would have not been right in an hour and a half or two hour production. Surely you must be relieved that you've got this two season run to tell this story. Well, I think what's been happening, you know, really in the Netflix era is we've seen TV, TV programs um, fulfill their potential and for, for TV to become, for TV programs to become novelistic in a way people thought they always could be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been watching Babylon Berlin and um, it's just so intense and sexy and emotionally satisfying. Um, it's like it's like what LA Confidential, the film, wished it could be, Yeah. you know? And that's what you can do with a big, you know, a big sprawling TV show is that you can explore character, um and and explore the situations in a way you just don't have you just can't in a film because you don't have the narrative real estate um i was terrifically pleased with the way nosferatu came out it was the brainchild of jamie o'brien yeah. um her she wrote the first she wrote the very first episode and was showrunner on both seasons i thought that first script you know when i read it i thought it was one of the best scripts I had ever read in my life. It was just so, it had such a deft touch with character. Um, and then, you know, and then we, we were lucky enough to have such a great cast. We had, you know, Zachary Quinto as um, the terrifying, um, but oddly charismatic 
Charlie Manx, who is a kind of soul vampire. Charlie Manx is the president of fun. I think um, um, I think he's like the one of the most underrated actors out there. I think he's so versatile. I've seen him in some great roles, and I just want to see more of him. I want to see him again on the big screen as much as possible. I love the guy. And I love Zach too. Yeah. And he really wanted to do, he wanted to do. So Charlie, Charlie Max stays young by feeding off the souls of children. Yeah. But if he doesn't feed often enough, he turns into this gnarled old man with really terrible fingernails and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and clearly uh, very poor dental care. And, uh, and Zach wanted that. Zach wanted to play, you know, this, uh, um, you know, sort of ghastly um, uh, Methuselah figure, you know, this kind of ancient evil. Um, and uh, and I thought he was tremendous. And he had and he brought such a sense of glee to the role, too, um, which I think is important. Um, Charlie Manx is kind of on a Freddy Krueger access. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's he's um, he's evil and he does terrible things. But he's kind of funny too. <laughs> he's kind of got. A, he's a little bit of a comic character as well, you know. And um, Zach was able to bring, you know, bring all of that to bring both the what was terrifying in the character um, and what was funny, and also explore the character's self deception. Because I think sort of the great part of Charlie Max is Charlie Max believes he's the hero of his own story. Um, you know, he he's been kidnapping children for hundred years. And he takes him for a long ride in his Rolls Royce and Silver Wraith, draining everything out of them except their sense of fun. So their memories, their sadness, their pain, their anger, it all feeds him. And when he's done with them, they're nothing but these gleeful little creatures with, you know, a mouthful of fangs. Um, and, and, you know, which is just sort of such a monstrous such a monstrous thing to do but in charlie's mind he's rescued them from mortality and from the tragedy of growing up in difficult families you know with the you know abusive mom and the drunk of a dad um of course the families he's rescuing them from are a mixed bag some of them some of them are you know just have the ordinary problems of ordinary families but in charlie's mind no parent is really as good as he is no and with all these adaptations that are coming up, which is so good, considering you've only got this small number of books at the moment and already they're getting adapted to TV. And, um, you know, I'm sure we're going to see, is there talks of the fireman coming out? Is that, is that, is that early days at the moment? Or is it just early talks? Well, I hope so. It's over. Um, it's over at Fox, which was yeah. absorbed by the mouse. So, um, so we'll see what happens there. I actually did uh, a big rewrite on the screenplay and was really happy with the way it came out. So I would love, that's something I would love to see happen. I it, you know, had terrific fun revisiting the characters in script form, um, you know, and so it'd be terrific if it would be terrific if that went forward in some capacity. Um, I mean, right now it's like the streaming era gold rush, you know, yeah. and, um, and it's, and it's crazy. And it's like, so all this stuff is getting developed and it's on, you know, um, a lot of us in the make-believe business kind of can't believe our luck, you know? It's just a really interesting moment to be doing sort of high-concept fiction because there are these opportunities to get stuff adapted. Um, I did a comic book called Lock and Key. Um, you know, I've been doing it for writing it since 2007. It's been sort of like my passion project since 2007. With, I do with my soul brother, Gabriel Rodriguez. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, uh, that's been made into a pretty successful Netflix show. Yeah. Um, you know, Carlton Cuse, who did Lost, is, you know, produced. And and the show is so zippy and fun. And, and it's sort of like... Um, um, actually, that has a little... It has a little bit of a Harry Potter vibe, in a way. It's... I mean, it's more of a... You know, it's more of a... Uh, you know less aimed at kids more at teenagers yeah. i think i think it's a little right. more risque yeah than harry potter but probably still kind of in the pg-13 zone um so and that's it's been fun to see that come together right now we're all kind of in lockdown and everyone's taking time out is that giving you an opportunity to get some projects finished that maybe you've had kind of on the back burner or are you just enjoying not having to tour and go to every bookshop around and try and sell stuff are you enjoying sitting there and just being in the position where you can write write and get more stuff done well i wrote two really long novels back to back i wrote nosferatu and then that was followed by the fireman yeah and then after that and then after that there, there have been a couple of collections a collection of novellas and a collection of short stories but i sort of needed a little while to figure out well what am i doing for the next novel what does the next novel look like so i actually took a couple of years off to write comic books um, and I had my own line of horror comics at DC called Hill House Comics. Um, I wrote three of them, Basketful of Heads, Plunge, and um, Sea Dogs, which is about how America won the Revolutionary War by using werewolves against the British. So that's that's um, the best title and summary ever. If you don't want to buy that comic from just hearing that little line alone, you are dead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's historically accurate. I'm pretty sure that's, I mean, look, let's face it, uh, you know, Britain had the most powerful war machine on the planet. <laughs> we barely had ammunition. How did we win? I mean, it had to be werewolves. I can't think of any other reason we could have, you know, won the revolution. So, um, so I did that. And then Hill House also had, we had some other folks writing for us, doing their own co horror comics. M.R. Um, Carey, who did The Girl with All the Gifts, yeah. um, which is a terrific British, British zombie picture. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, he wrote a he wrote a great one called The Dollhouse Family. Carmen Maria Machado did one um, called The Lolo Woods, which is sort of a lesbian Twin Peaks, um, and is is a hell of a lot of fun. And I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't get some award consideration. She's so good. Um, a TV writer named Laura Marks worked with artist Kelly Jones on a comic called Daphne Byrne, which I sell as a 19th century feminist version of The Omen. Um, wow. So we had fun with that. I did a uh, I did a sort of action crime comic called um, Dying is Easy. Um, that was sort of like, uh, you know, my homage to 80s cop action films like, you know, Beverly Hills Cop and Die Hard. And, nice. um, and that was fun. So I did a whole bunch of comic stuff and and had a blast. And it was sort of like shifting gears and shifting my perspective. Um, and now I got a novel going. I got about 500 pages of it. and I'm having fun again with that. So. Can you tease um, them all and give us any insight to that to those listeners out there who are now thinking, what's it about? What's it going to be? I won't say I, I'm I'm so superstitious. I don't dare give anything away about the plot, but the title is King Sorrow. Oh, OK. Well, that's something. That's good. Yeah. So uh, hopefully I'll have hopefully I'll be able to finish that one this year and we'll have it out next year. That's that's what I'd like. You know, we'll we'll see. I mean, you know, it can be going great. And then suddenly you hit a wall and, you know, you have to spend a month puzzling something out. So. And my, my final question for you today is there's a lot of people listening that are writing themselves. They might be writing screenplays or books or short stories, but what advice do you give to those people that are trying to then get published or get their work read? Because obviously it's a business that's so tough to try and make a name for yourself. 
Um, yeah. Less opportunity with the internet and people out there that you can contact. But what advice do you give to those people that want to then become like yourself and get their work published and get known and hopefully have a successful career? So, so when I broke in, you know, I broke in in a very different era before the internet, you know, I mean, like one of the reasons, you know, um, my pen name came apart at a certain point was because of the internet, which wasn't really a thing when I started. Um, you know, I hesitate to try to offer any advice to someone trying to come out in the certain, this current environment, because it's so different from, you know, the era when I was sort of knocking on doors and trying to break in. That said, I think, you know, if you blog and you offer interesting cultural commentary, you know, if there's a subject you're really passionate about, like shark movies, um, you know, have your shark movie blog and yeah. write in a really thoughtful way about shark movies. And maybe someone, you know, maybe that will be, you know, provide you with a, a, a foundation to write your comic about evil sharks with laser beams coming out of their eyes. I mean, the other thing I would say is, you know, the other thing I would say is you can't be a writer if you're not a reader. Um, If you're not, if you're not taking, if you're spending an hour on Facebook or Twitter, instead of an hour turning the pages, you know, you're not really reading enough um, to know what's going on, to know your own, you know, um, the literary culture around you. And and it's going to be that much harder to break in um i also think i also think read the kind of stuff you want to write you know um when i was when i was a teenager you know i obsessively read sandman neil gaiman's comic sandman i read alan moore swamp thing um i read all the dark scary vertigo titles that you know the horror comic books that dc was publishing in the 90s i don't think it's an accident i wound up writing lock and key because you are what you eat that's incredible. Um, what what fans yeah. they are as well like that's some of the best stuff out there and you're like growing up on that you go you know it's like it doesn't get much better than that no it really doesn't i mean like my teenage years was you know watchmen amazing and the dark knight returns wow. and you know it was this stuff that proved to be the the cornerstone of a multi-billion dollar entertainment business now you know it's like yeah. watchmen sandman batman and the avengers ate the world yeah and mickey's sitting there with it all in his hands yeah <laughs> mostly anyway yeah. mostly warner and brothers they- has uh zack snyder and, and the dc stuff yeah that's true and um i always make the episodes quite unique by asking the guests to choose the outro piece of music if i give you l- too long to think about it you'll be sitting there at three o'clock in the morning going oh i should have chose this or What's the one piece of music that means a lot to you? It can be a band, it can be uh, from a film score, it could be just a song that you love, but it will be the outro music to the Joe Hill episode of Mark and Me. Well, I listen to a lot of rock and roll and there's a lot of stuff I love. Before we started recording, we were talking about a British band called The Struts. Yeah. And I love the struts. They got this great, this sort of like located somewhere between 10 CC and uh, the Black Crows, maybe with a little bit of Queen tossed in there. And they're just a great, great band. They got a song called Put Your Money On Me. Yeah. Um, so let's have that for the outro. Perfect. Most people spend too long and like, oh, can I come back to you? Can I drop you an email? And they whittle it down to like 10 or 5. <laughs> Well, I think it's what, you know, that what goes with the gut and heart straight away when I ask the question. So, and as it's a British band as well, that's going to be even better. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks for talking to me, man. I really enjoyed it.
no, thank you, Joe. And I really appreciate your time and uh, good luck with everything. And I'm sure we'll cross paths again in the future when we can be at cons or Waterstone signings or whatever the world brings us. I hope so. So there it is. Me and Joe Hill talking all things film, TV, books and all the other things you get from this interview. What a great guy. And I absolutely loved him from the moment we started talking. I felt like we clicked straight away. And like I've said it a few times, but it's one of those interviews where I wish I could have had a couple of hours because it felt like we just started to scrape the surface. But, you know, let's hope our paths connect in the future and we get to sit down and talk even more. An absolute pleasure and a big thank you for Joe for coming on the episode. As I said at the start of today, he was promoting the new series Nosferatu, which is absolutely superb. And as a treat, I do have a copy of this to give away. So check out my Facebook, Twitter or Instagram over the next few days on how to win the Series 1 and 2 box set. You can do that by just simply visiting markandme.com. While you're on there, look at all my previous episodes. There's 123 sitting there for you right now. And there's going to be loads more coming. Not only that, I've got an amazing partnership with the incredible Vice Press. For me personally, they're the best company out there for posters. And check out this week, I've got an amazing competition to win an absolutely awesome poster. I'm not even going to give you the details right now because it's just I just don't think it's fair. I want you to wait and see. It's absolutely awesome and there's a variant that's already sold out and it's going to be exclusive now only via this podcast to win a copy because they've sold out in minutes. Stick around for that, honestly. It's awesome. If you want to support the podcast, I also have a Patreon page. You can go on there and sign up for as little as £1 a month. For that right now, you're getting two episodes per week. Every Wednesday, every Saturday, I'm delivering you a brand new slice of Mark and Me. Not only that, there's an opportunity to win some incredible goods. I've got t-shirts, I've got DVD box sets, I've got amazing posters, and some of this stuff money can't buy. And that's my way of thanking you guys for supporting this podcast. And all the money I get from that goes right back into the podcast to let me get more equipment, to travel the country and to host the podcast. I don't actually make any money from it. It's all an investment to give you guys more and more episodes at home. I want to thank again, Joe, for coming on the episode today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. I want to thank you guys at home for taking the time to listen. I'll be back again on Saturday with a brand new episode. So until then, take care and I'll speak to you all soon.